are live from the Empire of Lies, an oasis of truth, free speech, and open debate in the New World Order. I'm investigative reporter Lee Stranahan, and it's a Truth Tuesday with guest co-host Jason Goodman on The Backstory. Hey there, Jason. How you doing? I'm well, Lee. I'm still on my road trip. It seems like kind of a long time ago that I came to visit you, but I'm still out here on the road. You're a nomad. Is that it? <laughs> exactly. Kind of, yeah. Can you hear the road noise? I'll try to mute my mic when I'm not speaking. Yeah. So let's see how we do. We have two great guests today, by the way. You never met Russell Texas Benley, have you? I have not, but I look forward to meeting him today. So you got to admire anyone who fights in Donetsk and nickname is Texas, right? Yep. Yep. And he's a great guest, and you're going to be talking to him today. Then in the second hour, we have person who's been co-hosting with Jamal over at Fall Lines, Malik Abdul. And we're taking your calls, 202-521-1320. Jason, even though you're a nomad, you do the name of the show, don't you? I do, yeah. Well, say This, this is the backstory. So there's a bunch of stuff to talk about. But I'm going to talk about something I mentioned yesterday. I'm going to run an idea by you, okay, Jason? And if you have any good ideas, feel free to add them. So over the weekend, I was out protesting in support of Assange and doing my thing, sitting out in my chair with a sign. And I was trying to think, I was trying to think about more activism for Assange. And so I had the idea ready. The idea is a day called Art for Assange. And what it would be is everyone who's an artist, a painter, uh, you know, any kind of visual artist, a songwriter, poets, whatever. That day, as many people as possible do an art piece about Assange. Could be a drawing, whatever. And they all post them they post them online with the hashtag Art for Assange. And that way people can find each other's art. And the yeah. idea is to raise awareness of Assange. Does that make sense? And people who are artists are a natural pro-Assange constituency. They should be in favor of free speech, right? Yeah. So that's my Absolutely. idea, Jason. What, what do you think? I think it's an excellent idea, and I bet if you can really, you know, get it promoted and get people to know about it, it would uh, result in some excellent artwork being created. Yes, I I think so too. And that artwork could end up in a number of places. And I'm also going to urge people to buy the art of people who participate in this event. I'm going to say that we should urge people, you know, it's independent artists selling to other, you know, people. So yeah. I like that idea, too. And I've already yeah. talked to Taylor Hudak about this idea, and she likes it. And so I'm in the you know early stages right now, but I think it's a good idea and could raise yeah. a lot of awareness for Assange. What do you think, Jason? De- definitely. And then, I don't know, maybe you can even send artwork to Assange. They let him have artwork in jail. They'd make him feel better. Yeah. 
We could send them a cake with a key in it, too. Yeah, so, uh, exactly, a file. <laughs> he'd probably like that better than a drawing, be honest. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so let's go to the calls. 202-521-1320. Okay, Ben, you're on. Hey, Lee, how you doing, man? Uh, Good. First of all, Lee, I really want to uh, thank you, and I really want to uh, compliment you. You just don't know, for so many thousands of black people and for so many thousands of white people and for so many thousands of other people of other races, you are a true source of encouragement because of your physical challenge. Uh, you are not letting your physical challenge hold you back, and that is encouraging so many people that have physical challenges. Now, I'm going to say if I have a physical challenge, I won't say what it is, but I know if you're encouraging me, then there has to be thousands and thousands of others listening to you that you are encouraging and not allowing your physical challenge to hold you back. Man, we appreciate it. Keep up the good work. Um, you are so positive. You are so optimistic about the way you're handling your physical challenge, and you are a great source of encouragement and courage to so many people. I just want to thank you, and I'll continue to listen uh, on the radio. Thank you, Ali. Keep up the good work. And we're well, ben, ben, let me just say God bless you, and thank you so much. That's very nice of you to say. You know, very nice of you to say. And uh, you're an inspiration to me, sir. So thank you so much, Ben. Thanks for saying that. We have the best audience in the world, Jason. I'm going to cry. Sorry. But that was very moving to me. Does that make yeah. sense? Are you gonna, uh -huh. You're going to call me a wussy? It, it was very nice. Uh, oh, no, no, no. No, no, no. It's when you touch somebody like that, Lee, it's, you know, what, what more could you really want? You know? Yes, and, 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 and I'll, I'll admit it. Some days it's, it's difficult. Some days yeah. it's very tiring. Uh, and... But I'm trying to get more independent every day uh, by stuff that I'm doing. I've gotten very good at finding out what chords, like for instance, USB-C, USB-C, USB-A, whatever, you know, right. lightning cables yeah. by, by touch. I'm pretty good uh -huh. at that now. I can find uh -huh. them in the dark because wow. I can't see them. Right, right, and right. Speaking, it's a lot of fine details. Speaking of USB cables, let's, did you hear what they're doing in Europe? Uh, no. I wanted to talk to you about this. They're making a law that every cable needs to be for a, a phone, a video game, a computer. It all needs to be one mandated cable. Now, oh, they picked no. a good cable, USB-C. USB-C right. is a good cable. But yeah. I, I'm waiting for them to come out with USB-E, and then they right. won't be able to implement it, right? Yeah, you, yeah, I, no. We, I think it's a very bad idea. Yeah, we don't want the EU getting involved in telling you what to do with the phone. That's terrible. And they're saying it's going to save consumers X amount of dollars. Uh, and by the way, when some people say we're from the government and we're here to help, grab yeah. your wallet and run. Right, right. No, I don't like this idea, Lee. I think if they want to do that, the EU needs to invent an e-phone and get everybody to buy that and say, hey, hey, come buy our phone. It's 2030. We still have USB-C on it. You'd be like, get the hell out of here with that. Yeah. Now, in other tech news, there's more positive. 
Uh, yeah. Did you hear recently, and this affects me somewhat, as my girlfriend would be quick to tell you, uh, I have hearing problems. Uh, so, <laughs> and, and I'll tell you, you used to bug me about it all the time. My friend Dog the Bounty Hunter. And, oh, cause right. I yeah, you told me that. Right, right, right. right. Yes. So what they've done is they've made, now it used to be to get a hearing aid, you had to get basically a prescription and it had oh, to be government right. approved. Now they've said, because hearing aids, it's not that complex technology and it's not going to hurt you, right? Well, as long as it's not, as long as not toothpicks. So now you right. can buy hearing aids that are not pre-approved. And the cost, I was looking, I can buy an, a, a good hearing aid for like a hundred bucks on Amazon. Ah. I, th oh, wow. I think that's well, good. There you go. I Maybe like Joe that. Biden's finally done something right. You know, I, I don't blame him, you know, I, and we'll talk this about the his other decree, Joe right? That made it legal. I don't, I don't know. I think there was a, uh, whoever approved such things. The CDC, I don't know. I don't know who it is. But, uh, you know, I I don't fly much anymore. But I found out recently oh, they have allowed you to use your cell phone on the runway now. Is that true, Jason? I haven't been on a plane in two and a half years. Yeah, I'm the same way. But apparently you can use your phone on the runway, which I'm in favor of. That was the stupidest thing in the world. For a while, you couldn't use your phone, and you know people did, and there were no accidents caused by someone's phone right. jamming up the yeah. plane. Right, you know, take control of the cockpit with an app. <laughs> and and this is kind of why I don't trust the government on electric cars. You follow me? What do you mean? What, well, no. What do you mean? Oh, well, I'm in favor of electric you, cars, but I'm not. I'm not in favor of them mandating. Electric right. cars, because oh, I totally you know, if they could mandate that laptops need to have a twenty-hour battery life, okay, okay, right. that would, that would be great. First off, if your laptop could run for twenty hours, that'd be fantastic. But it's yeah. not possible today, because if it were, someone would do it, right? So well, that M1 whenever, does last a long, long time. Yeah, no, they're they're getting better. And uh, so when they start to set standards, I worry about these dopes in the government don't know anything about tech and don't know how innovation happens. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And frankly, Lee, there's not very much difference between mandating the USB port and telling everybody to go buy an electric car. It's the same premise. They have no idea what they're talking about. That's exactly right. Now, Jason, let's take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be joined by Russell Texas Benley, who's been bravely fighting over in Donetsk, and he's a great guest, and you'll like his energy a lot. So take us out with the name of the show, Jason Goodman. This is The Backstory. We are back on the backstory. 
and on the radio in Washington, D.C., the capital of the Empire of Lies, 105.5 FM and AM 1390. Joining us now is someone who's rapidly becoming a member of our family of guests, the great Russell Texas Benley. Hey, Russell, how you doing? Great, man. Glad to be back on the show. Hi, Russell. Russell, you're, we're joined by a special guest co-host from Crowdsource the Truth, Jason Goodman. So let me introduce you. Jason, Russell, Russell, Jason. Good Let's to be working you. with you, Jason. Likewise. So, Russell, do me a favor. I know you've told your story a bunch of times, but give us a quick Russell Bentley story again so Jason can hear it and know who you are. Okay, uh, I was born in 1960, grew up in Texas, um, always followed alternative politics and uh, news. When I saw what was happening in uh, Ukraine in 2013 with the Maidan, uh, I understood that it was just another color revolution, another uh, regime change operation, another country that was going to be destroyed by U.S., NATO, uh, you know, Western fascism. And uh, when I saw the people in the east of Ukraine start standing up against the uh, U.S. installed Nazi regime in Kiev and the war crimes that were committed against them, I decided to come here and uh, fight against the Nazis just like my granddad did. And so I came here in December of 2014. I joined the Vostok Battalion of the Donbass People's Republic uh, Militia, served for about a year in the Army in some very, very uh, heavy combat, and then started doing uh, humanitarian aid and war correspondence. I've been here for eight years. I'm a citizen of the DPR, the Donbass People's Republic, and also uh, a citizen of Russia now. And... Uh, I'm not planning to go back uh, to the United States unless I go with the Russian army. Hell of a guy, right, Jason? Amazing. Wow, amazing. I think, I think I've seen you uh, speaking with John Mark Dugan, haven't I? Yeah, I was uh, on with him a couple of times. Uh, yeah. Just in the last uh, week or so, I was up in Moscow and did a couple of shows with him. We did one yeah. uh, on the 10th of October that uh, redacted did uh, posted yesterday an uh, excerpt, a clip from the John's interview with me uh, that's got over half a million views today already. It hadn't even been up uh, for a whole day yet, and it's got a half a million views on YouTube. So we're honored to have you, Russell. Let me, before we get this stuff that's going on in Donetsk, in Russia, let me mm -hmm. ask you, I, because you're from Texas and you're of a certain age, I assume you were in Texas when the Branch Davidian thing in Waco went down, David Koresh and Jan Reno, were you were um, in Texas? Actually, I was living in Minnesota when that happened, but, uh, you know, I've kept close tabs in, with Texas for most of my life, at least till I came here. Dude, I was in I was in Dallas when JFK got whacked. Were you really? <laughs> Jason yeah, was, was just out half, there. But I remember it, man. Yeah, we he just, just did our last in, show from in there. Daily Plaza. Yeah, I was uh, just a few miles away from there. I mean, I was a little kid, so, but I remember my family freaking out and the 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 picture on the front page of the Dallas Morning Herald the next day. I remember it. So, I'm so let me ask you because you said you've always followed alternate media. When did you th see things w really starting to go off the tracks in America? 
You know, it could, you could pick any time, but I'm well, curious what, what it would be. I'd say that uh, for me, they started going off the tracks in 1980 when uh, uh, Bush Sr. and his puppet uh, Ronald Reagan got elected. And then uh, in the year 2000, that's when they went off the cliff, when Bush Jr. Uh, stole the election of 2000. You know, yeah, no, I agree with that a lot. I was in Texas. I was living in Austin when the Iraq war started. And I went out to the state capitol and protested that. In uh, mm-hmm. That was my first protest. And it was pretty big. But Are you, are you talking uh, so about that, the first Iraq war or or the second? I mean, the, the one Storm? post 9-11. The, the oh, one yeah. post 9-11. Yeah. Well, you know, actually, my first uh, big protest was uh, for for the Desert Storm uh, in 91, I think it was. I was up in Minneapolis, and uh, about uh, 50,000 of us got out there on uh, I-35 and shut the, the whole freeway down for about half the night. And that's why, you know, I remember that and, and that sort of event, big protests for peace. We're not really seeing that in the U.S. anymore, right, Jason? I haven't seen that in a while. It's mostly been people protesting unrest and protesting the police and burning down functional buildings. And I can see, Texas, why you'd be hesitant to come back to the U.S. Uh, because things are so screwed up here. It, and we had 30 Democrats, House Democrats, supposedly write a letter in favor of negotiation. But in the meantime, they attacked Russia in their letter and said, now I'm going to be blunt. One of the things the Democrats said, you heard about that letter, right, Jason? I did. I heard they had to walk it back already is what I heard. Yes, they had to walk back and it was already weak. So one of the things they said, Texas, is that Mm -hmm. Russia is losing the war in Ukraine. Now, bluntly, is Russia losing? Is Ukraine winning? Any possibility that's what's happening? The Texas same possibility as there would be that Mexico could defeat the United States in a conventional war, which is zero. Zero. Even, I mean, you got to look at the, you know, I think it was, I don't remember who, some Napoleon or Clausewitz or whoever, they said war is logistics. And so, If you look at the logistics, first of all, you know, the Ukrainian army had a very powerful army, but they have about 400,000 less soldiers alive now than they did uh, back in February. So uh, they've gotten a lot smaller. Of course, they're still bringing them in. They're bringing in mercenaries from Europe, from the United States. Uh, They're bringing in ISIS and Al Qaeda and Afghan soldiers to come in to fight on the Ukrainian army side right now. And that's, these are verified facts, man. And uh, the thing is, even with all of that, Russia has the conventional power to defeat Ukraine, you know, anytime that they want to go to all out war. Russia has the conventional power to defeat Ukraine plus NATO in Ukraine in a conventional war. Russia has the military power to, conv- to defeat NATO in Europe in a conventional war. I mean, you understand that, you know, Ukraine had the biggest army in Europe. 
in all of Europe at the beginning of this operation. The Polish army was the next biggest. I mean, France and England, the Netherlands. I mean, they, they probably have less than 2,000 tanks between all of them together. You know, I mean, I think Germany, the Bundeswehr, has like 300 tanks, man. You know, Russia has at least 10,000 that are operational right now, you know. So in a real serious fight, of course, it's impossible for Russia to lose. And I mean, and understand Russia is a nuclear power and they have explicitly said if it comes down to, you know, a threat to our existence as a nation, we will use them. So that makes it impossible for them to lose. You know, so the big danger Texas, now... Mm-hmm. When I saw you speaking to John Mark Dugan, you guys were talking about what members of his audience identified as nuclear fuel rods and some Russian soldiers who had been exposed to them and had become yeah. sick with what seemed like radiation sickness. Now we're hearing all kinds of talk about dirty bomb. It seems like they've already used dirty bomb tactics. What, what do you think about all that? Well, I mean, that uh, the photographs that we showed and what we were talking about and the people that reported it. You know, that that is confirmed. I mean, as much as anything can be confirmed without you going there yourself and seeing it with your own eyes. I mean, the people that reported that to us and those photographs, you know, they have been absolutely confirmed. Uh, The guys are in the hospital. They're not in good shape. So, yes, there was a small, dirty bomb already used by the Ukrainians against DPR forces in uh, the Donetsk People's Republic. And, uh, you know, the thing that's happening now is that Russia discovered at the beginning of the operation, like what I was saying on John's show, was that the first thing they did was they took the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant in in southern eastern Ukraine. They took uh, the Gostomel airport where there was a functional nuclear uh, dirty bomb, and they took... uh, They took over Chernobyl. I mean, I have two very good friends who were working with the uh, Russian GRU, the Russian military intelligence that went in there as Spetsnaz guys to secure, you know, the nuclear material that was there. And uh, so, I mean, that was one of their, I mean, it was their number one objective in the early days of this operation was to secure this nuclear material. But of course, They can't secure it all. There are still other nuclear power plants operating in Ukrainian held territory. And, you know, I mean, that's the whole thing that the Russians don't understand is just how completely, you know, psychopathic the people that run Ukraine are today. And I'm not talking about Ukrainians running Ukraine. I'm talking about people in London and Brussels and Washington, D.C. that call the shots in Kiev. And. and have been supporting the Banderites, the admirers of Stepan Bandera, for 80 years, as I pointed out. That's exactly right, man. Since the end of the Second World War. Yes, that's exactly right. It was a a CIA and OSS. I mean, it was from 1946, the year after the end of the war. They already had, and you can look it up on the Internet. It's called... Operation Aerodynamic, A-E-R-O-Dynamic. Now, now Russell, and and so let's talk about Bandera for a second. Jason, 
we we talked about Stefan Bandera before, and I point out every time the guy was a sadist, and I don't mean that as an insult. I mean literally when he was in school, he used to stick pieces of wood under his fingernails to oh. torture himself, prepare wow. himself for torture, and he was a sick sadist, right, Russell? So I'm not lying, right? No, you're not lying, bro. I mean. The uh, the Ukrainian collaborators with the German Nazis were probably the worst, you know, uh, war criminals of the Second World War. Even the German Nazis, even the SS, were shocked by what they did. You know, I mean, when you think about uh, Bobby Yar, where they murdered like 50,000 Jews and prisoners, you know, and just people they considered undesirable in like— a couple of days, man. And they just, I mean, yeah. it was industrial, you know, organized slaughter. Here in Donetsk, the city I live in, um, in this, during the Second World War, the Germans occupied this city for 700 days, exactly 700 days. And there's a mine about two kilometers from where I'm sitting right now. It's called the 4-4 mine. And it had a shaft that was uh, 1,000 360 feet, I mean, excuse me, meters. So, wow. No, excuse me, it was it was 365 meters deep, which is well over 1,000 feet deep. It was about 10 feet wide, about 15 feet across. And they threw at least 75,000 people down that hole in 700 days. Now, I mean, Texas... In, in you fighting these people, I'm curious, what have you seen and experienced firsthand? What strikes you as an example of the cruelty and sadism by the Banderite forces? Well, I mean, that you've, see, that you've seen. Most of on. the combat that I saw was at, at ranges of 150 to 400 meters between the Ukrop positions or their firing lines and our positions. I, I fought only defensive battles uh, during the 2015, and I also served in 2017, too. But during that time, all we did was hold our line. We never retreated once. We never lost a position. But, you know, we had firefights every day and every night. And, I mean, so it wasn't like, uh, you know, I busted in some bunker and, you know, saw some Nazis torturing a chick or something. I mean, I've seen some horrific uh, evidence, not firsthand, but, you know, I've seen videos that the Nazis have made uh, that are just beyond horrific. I'll tell you one time I was working when I was at the Donbass or Donetsk Airport, like uh, February or early March 2015. We were about 400 meters from the Ukrop positions as Pravi Sector, which is kind of a, you know, volunteer, real hardcore Nazi and we could hear this girl, you know, and you could tell it was not a, like a grown woman. It was like, you know, early teenager or something. And she was just screaming and screaming and crying and screaming. I mean, and it went on for hours, like maybe like maybe four hours. And I mean, and she'd scream and scream for like 20 minutes and then it'd stop for like 10, 15 minutes. And then she'd start screaming again. And then like after four hours, you know. Couple of bullet shots and no more screaming. Wow, that's amazing. 
That's brutal. And it, and to be clear, the Ukrainian forces, the regime, uh, you know, like you say, it's not fair to call them Ukrainian forces exactly because there are certain type of Nazi forces, Banderite forces. Yeah. You know, but and it's it, go ahead. No, no, you you go ahead, Texas. Well, I was just going to say that. I mean, a lot of people that interview me, you know, sometimes they'll say, but you know, hey, don't don't say the N word. You know, don't say Nazi. You know, because it, you know, it's it's just too much of a trigger and la di da and like that. But you know what? It is not rhetoric. It's not exaggeration by any degree. These dudes have, you know, swastika tattoos. They have portraits of Hitler tattooed to their bodies. You know. I mean, they have uh, swastikas on their helmets, on their uniforms, on their flags. They have, you know, photographs of Hitler in their barracks. You know, it's I mean, to not call him a Nazi is to is to is to be a lie. You know, you can't I mean, even neo-Nazi doesn't really cover it because these guys, they say Heil Hitler. They have the 1488 tattooed on their bodies. You know, they they're genuine Nazis and they act like Nazis. They torture and murder prisoners. They torture and murder civilians. They use civilians as human shields. They do collective punishment. I mean, and they believe you know, they believe. I think what confuses a lot of people is they think of Nazis and they think of Jews as the main victims. And obviously, Jews are a, a target even for the Ukrainian Nazis. But the main target is actually Russian speakers. They think Russian speakers are subhuman. Right. They literally think that they're not human. They think that they're that's animals. Exactly right. I mean, that's that is the basis of Nazism right there is it is the philosophy of masters and slaves. And they have the Ubermenschen and the Untermenschen and the Untermenschens, whoever ain't them. And they can be tortured or raped or killed or used for human organs or used for sex slaves or whatever they want. You know, what I mean, it's like. You know, if a guy owns a chicken, he can do whatever he wants to to it, you know, and that's the way that these people see, you know, Russian speaking people or communists. They see them as long as they can be exploited profitably. They see them as livestock to be used as slaves or whatever organ donors. But as soon as there's no more profit in having them around, then they see them as insects to be exterminated. You know, and the and part it's just, you mentioned I mean, about the, the communist part, it, that feeds into the Jewish part in part because they like to equate a lot of the – and some of the early communists were from a Jewish background, you know, Trotsky and yeah, so on. Yeah, of course. Karl Marx. I mean, so, that's true. But here's the point, bro, right. is that most people fail to understand, especially in America where most people are – historically illiterate is that yes you know they say that six million jews were killed by the german nazis in europe in the 30s and 40s you know i don't know what the real number is i'm not going to dispute that but what is also indisputable is that 25 million soviet citizens were were killed in that war 25 right. million. Yeah. so i mean so yes of course the the german nazis you know, they definitely had it in for the Jews, but they had it in even more, you know, five times more for the citizens and soldiers of the Soviet Union. And that's a simple historical fact.
that's beyond dispute. And you were in the U.S. in the 80s. You probably remember when they talked about Ivan the Terrible and the Ukrainian Nazi uh, concentration camp guards. And that was a big story in the 80s. Remember that? Yeah, of course I do. He was like in Chicago or something, and they were trying to send him back, right? That's right. John Dinyamuk. Demyang-yuk. That's yeah. tougher to say with a stroke than I might imagine. But Jason, do you have any questions? We're going to lose Texas very soon. But any questions for our esteemed guests? I, just, I mean, it's so strange to see how what we've been told about World War II is so vastly different. Like in the United States, we really don't hear anything about the Soviet dead. You know, Why do you think there's been so much deception and so much manipulation of the information around World War II? Well, because of the the Cold War, the anti-communist, uh, you know, whatever the 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 total bent by the Western and particularly Americans and English against communism. I mean, you know, right after the Second World War, I mean, you know, Winston Churchill and Dwight Eisenhower, you know, they admitted they said that this war could not have been won without. You know, the, the Russians, Hemingway said, every person that loves freedom owes a debt to the Russian Red Army that can never be repaid. You know, I mean, so and then so we can't, you know, and then if the next day we're saying communism is bad and you got to understand that this is a war between communism and fascism and fascism, Nazism, same thing, really. Benito Mussolini said that. Fascism could better be called corporatism because it is the merger of state and corporate power. And basically, if you take a real honest and objective look at the government of the United States today, it's owned by the corporations and the oligarchs. And it is exactly the definition of fascism. And I just want to say before we go that, you know, this war is you know, is going to get worse before it gets better. I can guarantee you that. And it's going to affect the people in the United States, uh, maybe not as much as in Ukraine or even in Europe, but it's going to affect the people of the United States in a very, very hard way. This winter and especially next year coming too, man, it's, it's going to get worse. And the thing that the people need to understand in the USA is that the Russian people and even the Russian government is not the enemy of the United States. It's not the enemy of Europe. You know, the whole thing about, you know, the energy shortage and stuff like that, that was totally rigged. It was not Russia's idea. Russia had contracts back in 2019 for all the countries in Europe to be buying, uh, you know, uh, liquefied natural gas for $250 per thousand cubic meters. Right now, it's 10 times that. And it wasn't that the Russians raised the price It's that the European Union went to the Strasbourg uh, Court for Economic Settlements and demanded in 2020 when the uh, COVID shut down all the industry and the price market price went down to 125. They demanded that Russia break the contracts and set the price at market price. And when after COVID shut down, the prices went back up 10 times higher. You know, the Russians said, hey, you're the ones who demanded this. So pay it, you know, and understand, too, this Nord Stream pipeline, you know, only an idiot 
can believe and only a liar would say that the Russians blew up their own pipeline. So that was definitely without question the United States or the allies of the United States that did that in order to make the only possible way for Europe to survive is to buy their gas at 10 times higher prices from the United States. And so, I mean, and that energy crisis is what it prevented Europe last year and this year from producing agricultural fertilizer, which is uh, the production of which is extremely energy intensive. The producers could not afford to buy the gas to make the fertilizer. Even if they did, the farmers couldn't have afforded to pay the price for the fertilizer they would have had to charge. So there's going to be a very serious, you know, I mean, they, they call it, they say it's going to be a food crisis. The real word is going to be a famine. People are going to die in Europe this year because of a lack of food. And it's not Russia's fault. Russia is willing to give away fertilizer to poor countries around the world that need it. It's willing to sell grain at, you know, at cost to countries around the world. It is the sanctions against Russia by the U.S. and by the EU that prevent that from happening. And this is I mean, this is all simple facts that can be confirmed by anybody that wants to take the time to look it up. Now, Texas, you're a rough hombre, but you would not be over there, I don't think, if you do not love and respect the people of Donetsk. Is that fair to say? Bro, I am a communist. I am a, um, I am a humanist. I love and respect all human beings, all good human beings. You know, I'm, I have, I know, a communist... I can't be a racist. I can't be a sexist. I can't be a nationalist. My goal is to make a better world for all the people in the world. And the point is, is that the cutting edge of the war of evil, of Nazism of the 21st century against the future of humanity is right now. It's in Donbass. It has been the whole time and Syria, too. But, you know, this is this is the cutting edge. That's why I came here, because this is where the decision is going to be made if the good guys or the bad guys win forever. You know, and I've said this, I say since 2015, I've said this and listen to me and remember, as goes Don Bass, so goes the world. So goes the world, brother. And uh, the enemy is pretty clearly also not just it's not a. It's not even a country at this point. It's the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab and the New World Order. Do you think that, that Texas? That's exactly well? right. I mean, at this point, capitalism is global. You know, the people who are billionaires, of which every billionaire on this planet is a thief. No one can earn a billion dollars, a thousand million dollars. Nobody can be that smart or work that hard. The only way you can get that much money is by stealing it. You know, like Big Bill Haywood, one of the founders of the IWW said, he said, every man that a do every dollar that a man has that he didn't work for is a dollar that somebody else worked for and didn't get paid. And that's what these billionaires are. They're the biggest parasites on the planet. It's the parasite class. They're international. They're global. And dude, I'd be happy to run the guillotine on every single one of them without exception. Donald Trump well, included. <laughs> I'm I'm a capitalist, but I'll say 
that you are my kind of comedy, Texas. And it's great to have you on the show. And keep up the great work and keep up your great yeah. fight. And say hi. Send our love to people of Denesk. Let them know yeah. all Americans are. All right. And I really right? appreciate you guys uh, keeping the truth out there, doing what you're doing. I mean, the truth is our most powerful weapon. So thanks a lot for having me on, guys. Thanks, Take Russell. Care. Really excellent. We'll talk segment. to you next time. Take care. What did you think of that, Jason? That was something else. Like, I mean, that that's a guy who just really grabs the bull by the horns, huh? Yeah, that's right. I told you, great energy. And Russell yeah. Bentley, great work. And he's doing brave stuff, fighting for the good. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about more stuff on The Backstory. Backstory on 105.5 FM, AM 1390. So, Jason, now you experience Russell, Texas, Bentley. Quite a guy, huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was a great, great segment. Very interesting. So, here at home, we're now two weeks away from, I would say, the most important midterms ever. Do you yeah. agree with that, Jason? I know every election is the most important one, but I really think this one is. I agree. Now, there's some debates happening tonight is going to be Dr. Oz versus John Fetterwoman. Right. <laughs> well, and a computer. And, and there's going to be no audience there. Oh, really? I didn't realize that. That's interesting. But there will be a teleprompter. Yeah, he's got some sort of assisted device or something. And Fetterman's team is downplaying expectations. They're saying Dr. Oz is a, you know, public speaker. And so by I think this will be the 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 dagger in the back of Fetterman. I think this will do him in cuz I expect him to be, do a bad performance. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen, no, I, Jason? I agree. The unraveling is happening now. There was a whole thing last week where perhaps his wife, Joe Biden, said his wife would be good in the Senate. I mean, uh, Joe Biden and John Fetterman could have a debate. That would at least be, you know, fairly matched. But uh, I think it's going to be a very poor showing by Fetterman. Now, uh, also, Ron DeSantis... Uh, debated against Charlie Chris. Let's hear a little of that. We have a clip of that, Jason. Hit it. Say this. You mentioned, Liz, that people are flocking to Florida. That would not have happened if Charlie Chris had his way. He wrote me a letter in July of 2020 saying you need to shut down the state of Florida. He said you need to force people to shelter in their own homes. That would have destroyed the state of Florida. That would have caused that would have caused our tourism industry to go into the toilet. It would have locked out millions of kids from school. I rejected Charlie Chris' lockdown letter. I kept this state open and I kept this state free. 
And we now have the biggest budget surplus in the history of Florida. Uh, we have a 2.5% unemployment, Governor, second lowest time. on record, and we just did the biggest tax cut in Florida Thank history. Thank you, Governor. That's time. Thank you very much. Well, Ron, that's rich. You're the only governor in the history of Florida that's ever shut down our schools. You're the only governor in the history of Florida that shut down our businesses. I never did that as governor. You're the one who's the shutdown guy. We need to have somebody who is at the helm that understands it's important to listen to science, to do what's right, to utilize common sense. You don't just shut down at the outset, and then when it's you know politically convenient for you, you want to open back up to store political things. Governor, you have 30 seconds. Well, so he opposed having kids in school. His supporters sued me to keep the kids out of school in 2020. And, ha and how critical was that decision? We just got the nation's report card, the results from all 50 states. Florida, number three in fourth grade reading and number four in the country in fourth grade math. And if you adjust that for demographics, we are number one in the country in both. That would not have happened if we let Charlie Chris and his friends lock our kids out of school like they did in California and like they did in New York. We did Thank it right you, in Florida. Now, I would say that is very confusing messaging on Chris's part. He's accused yeah. DeSantis of being the shutdown guy, which is fair. <laughs> you are opposed to the shutdown. But the next thing yeah. he says, it's, it's clear that he was opposed to DeSantis opening up. Am I right? You're right. That guy makes no sense. Right. And everyone knows Charlie Chris would have shut down everything. And he wouldn't have opened it. And he would have said, it's a science. But yeah. not so much. <laughs> He's listening to science. So science. So I don't see any way DeSantis is going to lose. Also, Charlie Chris has been around forever in Florida politics. And by now, people are pretty sick of him. You know what I just you know, realized, Lee? When, when a politician or a news person says trust the science, by, by saying the science rather than science in general, they're doing something. They're giving you a particular thing that is a piece of science that they're suggesting you should trust. It's different than trusting science and the scientific process in general. I'm driving by a Trump Pence pickup truck. Right, and and this relates to the tech thing we're talking about. Right now, the science is USB-C, right? Right. That's the science. Yeah. But trust it. Things in science change by yeah. its nature. Go ahead, Jason. Technological evolution, of course. So uh, I'm seeing nothing that. And by the way, I'll go back to the letter. 30 Democrats wrote, I believe they are seeing, because they saw how the, those people yelled at AOC. These are progressive Democrats. But those progressive Democrats are not coming out opposing the war. They're coming out in favor of the war. They're just saying Russia's nuts and Putin's evil, but we should negotiate with them. Look, if that's the case, I wouldn't be in favor of negotiating. If I thought that Putin was a madman yeah. who was ready to use nukes at a moment's notice, I would not urge 
negotiating with them because that makes no sense. So this is purely well, it wouldn't be possible move. with a mad person. Yeah, it wouldn't be possible to negotiate with a mad person. But the Democrats don't seem to realize how much trouble they're in. And that's because, let me put it like this. The economy, everyone knows how bad the economy is because everyone shops at stores. And you can't buy food. You can't buy butter without noticing the problem. And that is more than 6% inflation. Does that make sense, Jason? If butter had gone up 6%, I wouldn't notice. So, so go ahead, Jason. Sounds like we lost Jason. Oh, gasoline as well. Everything. Yeah. What are you seeing for gas prices you. As, you tour, as you tour around the country? What's the biggest gas price you've seen? Well, that's really interesting. Well, it was in California, 629, and I had to drive around to find that. There was no shortage of 699 and even 709. But then, you know, um, some places where there are Native American reservations like Nevada and New Mexico, I was able to get gas for much, much less. And then in Texas, of course, was the lowest. I think I paid 309 for gas in Texas. But within just a couple days, really, or short weeks, quite a price disparity of 629 and 309, California versus Texas. And... Uh now, why on the Indian reservations was it lowered? No tax, know? I'm told. No federal okay. tax. That makes sense. Uh, so when you think about it, Lee, when they say, oh, it's not Joe Biden's fault that inflation is so high, why don't they alleviate the federal tax from gasoline? Why don't they make states alleviate the tax from gasoline to ease up on American consumers? They haven't talked about that. Now, Jason, also, as you've been traveling around the country, have you seen any signs of the homeless crisis in a way that surprised you? Well, it's tough to say because a lot of these cities that I'm visiting, I haven't seen before. So if I see two or three or even five people laying in the street, being from New York, I'm slightly desensitized to that. Um, it seems like, uh, you know, travel is down. Las Vegas on a Friday night, the strip was dead. And when I went to uh, Mount Rushmore, you know, there weren't a lot of people there. And um, I mean, you know, it's it's basically everyone, I think, is kind of hunkered down and waiting to see what will happen next. Like you said, people are very concerned about what's developing in Ukraine and how that might play out over here. Increasing energy prices, the weakness of the dollar. Everyone's kind of feeling it, even if they're not aware of it directly. So we'll talk about some more of that stuff after this short break. Let's take a short break and come back with your calls. 202-521-1320 on The Backstory. back on the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm Lee Strahan with our special guest co-host Jason Goodman on Truth Tuesday on The Backstory. I want to thank Russell Texas Benley once again 
bravely fighting in Donetsk. Great appearance by Russell. Coming up this hour, you hear him on fall lines, Malik Abdul. And we'll talk to Malik at the end of this half hour. And we're taking your calls, 202-521-1320. Jason, take us out on the boom. What's the name of the show? This is the backstory. So, Jason, we already have one caller, 202-521-1320. The great killer of owls, owl killer. Owl Go ahead. Killer. What's on your mind, Hello. buddy? All right. So, first, I mean, all the way up until they start talking about uh, guillotines. And I guess, like, they just forget that the guillotines have a never-ending thirst for blood. And it doesn't, it ain't going to stop with the billionaires. Um, now, and I, I, I agree with him. I think the the billionaires today, they're, they're menaces, especially because they just can't just take their money and be happy. They got to get, you know, they, they, fund, they put money into everything to destroy our lives. But uh, up to the guillotine point, that, that's where I had to say, all right, enough of that. Um, you're talking about the science. Didn't, wasn't it, who was the uh, World Economic uh, uh, female that was talking the other day that said, um, we, can, we own the science? That's what it is. That's it, that's the game that it is. You know, they're so concerned about global warming and everything like that, but they, they're not worried about nuclear war. You know, it, it's it's one of those issues. It's like evolution. It's something that you got to push so far down the line. So they tell you in like thirty years, fifty years that way, because you they know you're never going to see this. Um, you know, global warming apocalypse. So it, it's just a scare tactic. But it's it's crazy that they're not worried about. Uh, a, a nuclear war. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't think that the Democrats are uh, oblivious to what's, what's going on. Obviously, you know, for them to be concerned, you know, to actually be presenting, Hey, we should be trying to negotiate for peace. I just think that they're going to give the Republicans a scorched earth to rule. And there's going to be, it's going to be impossible to put it together in two or four, uh, to fix anything in two to four years, and they're going to get the blame for the calamity that ensues. Yeah, and, and I don't think they mean it at all. They use the word negotiation, but you don't say, I'm willing to negotiate, and then insult and say the people you're fighting are crazy. Does that make sense? Of course. Of, yeah, you can't negotiate. I mean, wh- why did we have to... You know, why, why did we drop the bombs on Japan? Because they were never going to surrender, and there was no way that, um, you know, we weren't going to lose some, um, some estimates that we weren't going to risk a million-plus uh, Americans to, uh, you know, fight fight them uh, traditionally. You know, that that was why we dropped—you don't negotiate with crazy people, so, you know, that, that, would, that would negate their whole point. So great call as usual, I'll call her, but the phones are filling up, so I got it. And by the way, just so you know, on the line, we're going to go to Bobby first, and then Malik, we're going to get you after Bobby. So hold on, we'll get to you. 202-521-3020. Bobby in Prince George's County, you're on the backstory. Uh, yes, Lee, thank you for taking my call. Um, I have a... a Suggestion for you and your guests. I keep on hearing the term Marxist, leftist. Uh, to me, it's Bolsheviks, commies, pinkos, reds, fellow travelers, and especially 
especially useful idiots. I think we, and the people on the right, for want of a better term, uh, should start using these terms, Bolshevik. Okay, let, let me let me ask you, were they useful idiots who died at Stalingrad? The useful idiots defeated the Nazis. You know that, right? Would you want to call those people useful idiots, the Red Army, who defeated the Nazis in World War II? Yeah, but I also wouldn't call them communists. I would call them maybe the Red Army. And no, they were they were communists. In fact, they were communists. The USSR's army defeated Nazi Germany, and they they flew the USSR flag over Berlin when they captured it. So. Do you want to call the entire Red Army useful idiots? No. I'm talking about what's going on right now, not what happened 50 years ago when we defeated the Nazis. The, but the, what's the difference? You know, I, you know. again, I, I don't like communism, and I have an argument against it. But uh, trashing, insulting communists too much, you know— you know, I, whatever. I I don't mind calling people commies. I'm fine with that. But because uh, I think when I do it, to a certain extent, it's playful. But I think really insulting him misunderstands what's going on. And the real threat right now is not communism. The real threat right now is fascism. Biden is not a communist. He's a fascist. Would you agree with that, Jason? He's uh, manipulating social media companies and taking millions of dollars from international Chinese banks, corporate power, government power. He loves it. And, uh, you know, I often have conversations like with Russell Texas Bentley, where I say, and I mean it, that's my kind of commie. George Galloway is my kind <laughs> of right. commie. Well, I was surprised when he... I was surprised when Russell said he was a communist. Well, if you look at Texas the, from, if you look at it from one perspective, if communists are anti-fascist, uh, and Texas is walking the talk, he's out there fighting Nazis. You follow me? He's right. risking his life yeah. fighting fascists, fighting fascists. Can't you, be anti, can't you be anti-fascist and also a capitalist? Yes, and uh, well, and I am. But I will say this: some people are communists because they actually care about people. Do you know what I'm saying? They they care about the welfare of people, and some people. Right. But uh, you know, you know, I met people, Galloway, someone like him. I think generally is concerned about humanity. But great call, Bobby. Thanks for the call. 202-521-1320. Malik in D.C. Haven't talked to you in a while. What's on your mind? Taking my call, Lee. Um, I enjoyed your guests. And I think I, I, I caught him the last time he was on, or maybe one of the last times you had him. I, I think you've only had him on twice. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. You're a keen observer of the show. This is his second appearance. So I, I heard him once before. Um, and enjoyed, uh, actually enjoyed uh, listening to him more this time than than the last. Um, and uh, I, I, it seemed that you know uh, this was more of a 
historical uh, uh, conversation, and I, I appreciated that. Uh, and, and what I what I appreciate him about him uh, so much is he he not only obviously does he uh, walk you know his talk, but um, I've always questioned those in America who say that they're patriots and that they they support the war you know the you know i mean as they understand it they they support their their grandfather's uh uh history of of fighting uh in world war 2 against the nazis uh but at the same time they will support wars that are unjust by by the US military uh they'll just support it just based on knee jerk reactionary politics and just to support the flag, regardless of whether the war is just or not, or whether the U.S. should be wherever it's putting its boots down. Um, and I, I, I appreciate him living his politics, which is my my biggest beef uh, of the left in, in America. And I consider myself a, a revolutionary socialist. And largely, I, I do it, and, it, and you know, to refer to your last caller, because I, I, I have no choice. You know, I was, I was born poor, and I was born into the working class in Harlem, New York City. And as far as I'm concerned, uh, I can't identify uh, with uh, the class outside of my own. And I can't defeat my own purpose. It, it, it would defeat my own purpose. It would be a, a self-hating proposition if I were to step outside of that. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a poor working class guy. I, you know, I, I don't have access to the things that the, uh, you know, that even the, the black middle class has or the, the black affluent class. I have problems with them. So it's not just that I'm, you know, uh, I don't have a problem with white folks. I got a problem. I got a problem with the, the class structure uh, in, in, in capitalism. Um, so it's not it's not a race thing. But before I go, before I jump off, could you ask Malik? Well, when he I got a question. Malik, I, I have a question for you. So don't get, get off the phone yet, yet. OK, continue. Make your point, though. No, I just, if you could pass this on to Malik when you get him on, because I've been wanting to ask him. Uh, there's been a phenomenon uh, in social media, particularly on YouTube, of young black men in their late 20s, early 30s, who've gravitated towards um, kind of, you know, for, for lack of a better term, white conservatism. You know, they're involved in the kind of men's rights movement, but they, you know, they've skipped over black nationalism you can tell that they they've they've done no study of black nationalism or even revolutionary nationalism or 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 black internationalism and they've jumped right into american conservative politics and they're they're quite comfortable to do that um and i i i'd, I'd love malik's uh take to hear malik's take on why um because black people are obviously leaving the left uh and leaving the democratic party but are jumping right into uh, you know, kind of Trumpism uh, forms of conservatism. So uh, I'll ask about that. But do me a favor, actually, Malik. Can you call in when Malik's on and ask him yourself? Sure. Sure. Uh, I because uh, I'd rather I I don't want to screw it up. You you know what I'm saying? So I'd rather have you ask him yourself. Let me ask you something. Because uh, we've talked about. So the sixties radicals, the Panthers and so on. So Angela Y. Davis. Angela Davis was, you know, one of the most famous 
black radicals of the 60s. But she comes from a middle-class black background in Alabama. And also, a, a friend of mine pointed this out to me. A lot, of, Like a lot of the Panthers, the Panther women especially, like Kathleen Cleaver uh, and uh, I think Asada, uh, certainly uh, Elaine Brown, a lot of them were were light skinned, too. Were very light skinned, black women. Do you? How do you account for the fact? Do you consider Angela kind of bougie? Well, she went to Brandeis and studied the Frankfurt School. She's not a working class or lower class black person. How do you account for her? I will. I I'll, I'll say this. Um, when when I came, it was Panthers. Uh, you know, and I've mentioned this in the past, it was former members of the Harlem chapter of the Black Panther Party, and uh, some of them were former Black Liberation Army, uh, that started an organization in New York City and brought me and several other youth uh, into political organization uh, in the 90s uh, and started uh, an organization called the Black Panther Collective. They were largely, the people who brought me in were largely from the working class um, and, and, and poor. Uh, they have great relationships with the people that, that you mentioned and, and other Panthers that did not come from their background. And how I attribute that uh, is, you know, the Panthers, as Bobby Seale once said, uh, they were black intelligentsia. And the Bay Area is a very, very, um, unlike the New York City Panthers, who, you know, were more proletariat, they came from... Uh, and you can imagine the Harlem in the Harlem in the '60s, as opposed to uh, Oakland in in the uh, '60s. And not to say that Oakland didn't have ghettos. Um, Harlem's ghetto is not like Oakland's ghetto. Ghetto wasn't back then, and it definitely isn't now. Um, when I go, when I went to the Bay, the Bay was largely uh, it was. They're very focused on um, formal education. And going to college, not to say that you don't find that on the East Coast, but and uh, many of the organizers that I met when I first went to uh, the Bay Area in the '90s, uh, they would take me to their neighborhoods and they would live in uh, three-floor walk-ups. Whereas I grew up in a tenement in Central Harlem. Uh, and Hugh and Hugh, Hugh and Bobby met at college to go along with what you're saying. And I mentioned it before, but Huey went to Oakland Tech, a high school in Oakland that my dad went to. And my when my dad attended 10 years before Huey, along with Clint Eastwood, when my dad attended, the basketball team was all white. My dad told me the coach wouldn't let the black kids play on the basketball team. So that's where Huey went to school, Oakland Tech. Just throwing that in there. Go on, Malik. So the, the, the color thing that you're talking about, listen, I, I don't think anybody will deny that there is a uh, uh, colorism issue uh, in the black community. I think you'll find that in just about every non-white community. You'll find it in the Asian community. You'll find it in the Latino community. And it's, and it's really a gift of colonialism and, and slavery. It is what it is. And it's still with us today. And you will find that even now, 
Uh, and it's not necessarily along the color, lo color lines, it's class. You will find in the left, which is why I have in many ways defected from the left, is you will find that uh, there is a middle class orientation. And the left, and, and that I've noticed, in the black, particularly the black left, has become very elitist. And it has pretty much eliminated those who are from my economic background. You know, we do the footwork, but we're not in leadership. And that's... And that's well, did, did, you, did you ever see the place Huey lived, the penthouse apartment on Lake Merritt, right across from the Alameda County Jail? Have you ever seen the penthouse apartment he lived in? I've seen some photos from inside the apartment, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, you know, and that's where Elaine lived, too. So, you know... And a lot of the 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 Panthers, the the you know what I'll call rank and file, didn't live in that penthouse. They lived in squalor, and so that's one of my objections to Huey in particular and Elaine Brown. So what say you to that? And then we got to move on, Malik. But great call as usual. The left, the the left is not exempt. Uh, from these forms of classism and elitism. And that, that whole thing about complexion is a part of, uh, it's, it is a, a vestige of classism and elitism in the African community, uh, probably throughout the world, but definitely in America. So Malik, great call. Call back and I, we'll push on with Malik at the bottom of a half hour. Thanks so much for calling. Now, Command Central, who'd you say was on? Okay, so going to Tom on the line, 202-521-1320. Tom, go ahead. Hey, uh, good show. Um, uh, I'll admit my uh, bias is right off the bat. I am a Marxist-Leninist Trotskyist, and I do want to salute you for uh, saluting the Red Army that won World War II. Uh, however, the Red Army had been bled white by the Stalin's purges in the 30s, uh, the, the general staff uh, were all put up as suspected, as, as called Trotskyists and Mikadoites and, uh, and, and st agents of Hitler. Uh, the whole purge thing was, uh, was Stalinism, which was analyzed by Trotsky as a, uh, a nationalist aberration of Marxism. It was uh, like trade union leaders... Um, you know, who are uh, conservative and defensive, but sitting on top of a union, they were sitting on top of a collectivized economy that uh, had been collectivized and, uh, you know, institute planning was instituted and, uh, you know, a great deal of progress made in the early years of uh, the Soviet Union, despite, of course, the low place where they started. You know, uh, there was there was cannibalism in, in, uh, in the countryside of, in the, in the, uh, the Civil War. Um, which, of course, was launched by all the capitalist parties, uh, all the capitalist powers of the West, including the United States, 18 to 20 uh, nation states invaded the Soviet Union, hoping to, you know, destroy, uh, you know, kill the serpent in its nest, so to speak. That was uh, Churchill's phrase. But, of course, it should have been, it was also applied to Hitler and fascism. Um, I want to take exception to your, your definition of fascism, and it's, but it's, uh, but 
but by no means uh, are you alone. Everyone misunderstands fascism and misuses it. And now we have a, a president of a Democratic Party hack politician uh, like Joe Biden, a truly loathsome person, uh, corrupt. So, so Tom, let me stop for one second. I don't think I define fascism because actually, you, so what do you what do you think I said? Fascist, right? Didn't you? What? Did what? You Biden a fascist? Uh, I consider as as uh, that's not a definition. It's a description, and because I don't actually view fascism as an ideology, I view it as a means of convincing masses. I take a Sorelian definition of fascism. I don't view it as primarily ideological. Well, the Marxist uh, the, uh, def- use of uh, the word fascism basically uh, is a heightened reactionary um, uh, force, uh, lumpenized usually uh, from, from working class, marginalized people who become basically the shock troops of the, the, of the capitalists and are used and resorted to when needed. That's why, that's why there is no, fa- you know, there are fascists hanging around in this country, but there's been no need for the ruling class in this country to resort to fascism. Why? Because the working class is, does, does not threaten it. It really, it truly doesn't. The working class in this country is saddled with a decrepit labor union leadership that is beholden to the Democratic Party, which is a capitalist party. We've got this, you know, two-for mentality, where the left is, the Democrats are considered left. It's absolutely absurd. And by the way, the Black Panthers, some of the best uh, uh, fighters of their generation, but how many of them became Democrats or Republicans? Huey Newton and uh, Angela Davis uh, supporting, uh, you know, uh, endorsing Biden. And um, uh, Yeah, Angela Davis was also speaker at the Women's March on Trump's inauguration. So, yeah, and Elaine is very... uh, she was on the Oakland City Council, and she, she's, she back in the sixties, had figured out where the money is. She was an ally of Jerry Brown's in the sixties. So famous, yeah. Go ahead. Democrats are Dixiecrats, and they still were. They were, and they still are in in certain respects. That's why many blacks of the South were, uh, you know, lifelong Republicans. And they were definitely anti-gun control. They, you know, they a Winchester rifle, according to uh, Ida, uh, um, who was the uh, the muckraker in the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century, uh, jur- black journalist from Memphis. Uh, um, is it Ida B. Wells? Uh, famously said, a Winchester has a place of honor in every black household, and gun control does kill blacks. I'm absolutely against it. Um, and that's part of the agenda, democratic agenda to disarm the population. Uh, I know, you know, it's horrible what, uh, what you know, deranged uh, mental cases do with guns. Um, but that's not, uh, um, and that, of course, is used every time as, a, you know, as an excuse to try to, you know, try to take guns away. Uh, and I say that as not as a gun owner, but certainly a potential one. Um, yeah, fascism... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I think uh, I think fa- the 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 misuse of fascism stems from the stupidest uh, so-called uh, people of the left, which are the Maoists, 
who are, you know, uh, Stalinists of a certain type. Uh, Tom, we're out of time. And Malik is on the line, so I got to get at him. But great call. Call back anytime. And Jason, I want to hear what you have to say about a number of the calls. But we got to go to a break and bring on Malik Abdul. So let's take a break. Take us out, Jason, with a name in the show at least. This is the backstory. back on the backstory and on the radio 105.5 fm am 1390 in washington dc the capital of the empire of lies joining us now first time guests you hear every morning right here on spudnik on phone lines malik abdul malik how you doing i'm good i'm good thanks for having me well thanks hey, for please. coming on a pleasure to meet you jason goodman is co-hosting so jason malik Malik, Jason. Pleased to meet you. Nice to meet you, Jason. So, Malik, pardon me one sec. I want to explain something from the last episode, from the last half hour, forgive me, that I didn't explain. Uh, I was mentioning Elaine Brown. For people who don't know who Elaine is, in the 60s, the Black Panthers were led by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. So at one point towards the end of the 60s, Huey Newton fled to Cuba because he'd killed a prostitute and beaten up his tailor. And Elaine Brown was a person who took over control of the Black Panthers. Elaine has a book you can find on Amazon or any place called A Taste of Power. She ran the Panthers when Huey was in Cuba. So I mentioned her a few times. That's who Elaine Brown is. Does that make sense, Jason? Yes. Sorry, Lee. It does. Thank you for that recap. Yeah. Well, you know, because, you know, I know Malik knows who she is. But uh, Malik, do us a favor. Tell your story a little bit. How did you get here? Uh, I understand you fled the left. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, right. Um, it was, I left in 2016. Um, I voted for Barack Obama twice. I campaigned for him in 2018, working on his campaign down in Virginia. Uh, so I had been a lifelong Democrat. But um, I guess you could say it, there was a, a transition probably over the years because I started government as a George Bush political appointee. And so I had a different, I gained a different perspective on the role of government in our lives and also. Um, when Barack Obama was in office, I gained a new perspective on race. But I had told myself that if the Democrats nominated Hillary Clinton, then I would leave the Democratic Party. So it was a foregone conclusion once um, Hillary Clinton was the nominee that I was going to leave the Democratic Party. So I did that in 2016, starting as a Jeb Bush supporter. Um, because I'm, I remain a fan of the Bush family, but it was a Jeff Bush supporter, then it was a Chris Christie supporter, but I ended up voting for Donald Trump after voting for Bernie Sanders in the primary of 2016. 
No, and what was I the was new a, perspective I, that I you? Voted for, yeah, go ahead, sorry, Jason. Sorry, well, what was the new perspective that you had gained on race when Barack Obama was elected? Or you said something about that. Yeah, because so there were certain expectations that I had um, of Barack Obama as president because he was black. And I began to realize that not only were those unrealistic expectations of someone just because they were black, they were also um, unrealistic things that the things that I once considered um, even racist, um, I gained a new perspective on what that meant when you had a black president in the White House. And so to explain that, the things that whether you're talking about, so just consider many of the things that you talk about in the black community that we're concerned about. So crime, education, um, you know, even if you're a business owner, but, you know, business development and all those type of things, you know, I assume that having a black president, you know, the things that we talked about, he has eight years to do it. So we're going to be good after that. But those I realized that those were unrealistic expectations, not just of a president, but especially someone, anyone black. And so the things that I um, the things that impacted our community I began to realize that those things not only happen at the local level, that the federal government is not is not there to necessarily save us. And, and uh, so, yeah, and I voted for Obama in 2008, and part of it was because I hate Hillary Clinton. And also because, <laughs> do you remember this? When Hillary Clinton was, a, was in favor of the individual mandate, and Obama was opposed on health care to the individual mandate. <laughs> I've never liked the individual mandate. And so Obama, I remember in 2008, he said, mandating health care is like curing homelessness by mandating people buy houses. It makes no sense. <clears throat> Do you remember that, Malik? I, I, that? I absolutely I absolutely remember it. And I know that Hillary Clinton, for all intents and purposes, is a corporate corporatist Democrat. Her, her husband, Bill Clinton, was Mr. DLC Democrat, was I think that was the Democratic Leadership Conference, which were, were considered conservative um, Democrats. So she comes from that era. Yes, and I, I was opposed to it. And I was somewhat surprised because when, when Obama switched without mentioning it. But do you think Obama was, because I still think, you know, some people are going to freak out. I'm, I'm going to say something that's going to freak some people out. I was listening, we played a quote from Obama, a clip with him on it. And I kind of miss Obama. And the way I kind of miss him is he seems to me to be, he was saying stuff about how he's sort of disturbed by the woke stuff. And he thinks it's people, Democrats need to focus on issues people care about. And they're kind of a wet blanket with the woke stuff. And I, that, that is the Obama I like. I still, have, I still have some fondness. Do you have any fondness still for Obama, Malik? Uh, no. <laughs> and the reason that I don't is that that's another thing that I, you know, being a hardcore supporter, when I say I was an Obama supporter, I considered myself the president of the Obama. If there was an Obama nation, 
I was the self-described president of the Obama nation. But I realized that a lot of the things that actually not a lot, most of the things that I liked about Barack Obama were um, performative things. Um, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but I liked his coolness. I liked the way that he talked. I liked the way that he talked about, um, you know, uh, we're one America and si se puede. And like, I liked all of the drama, you know, of Barack Obama. And that's separate from Barack Obama's policies. I think that Barack Obama, what he's doing now, I call BS on it um, because Barack Obama is very careful with his words. And so he can be saying a lot of things, but the Barack Obama who's telling Demo you know, Democrats that, you know, you, you being a little too woke right ahead of an election, I might add, um, you know, speaking out against this woke culture, I think this is more about Barack Obama than it is the Democratic Party, because despite him being right, this is the same Barack Obama who, when he was in office, went to the NAACP and told um, the black people in the audience there to stop complaining and get up and get out in the streets. And, you know, he was that hard charging Obama. So I think that this is the Barack Obama of convenience. And no, I don't miss that and many other things about Barack Obama. Yeah, so I don't miss that stuff. But you, you talk about the manner in general. He seems like mm -hmm. a guy who's read a book. I'll say that. And, yes, uh, absolutely. And do you think that Barack Obama, because obviously when he was in college at Columbia and Occidental, he was a, a, a leftist. A left of the leftists. When he was reading Franz Fanon in Occidental, do you think that Obama still has the heart of a leftist, but has compromised because you kind of have to to succeed as a Democrat? Do you think he's still I, at heart though a leftist? I don't know if he ever was a leftist. I do know, you know, we have to consider his mother. Um, his mother was probably more of a leftist than Barack Obama. But I think that Barack Obama has a history. And again, I don't mean this in a negative way, but I think he's a man of convenience. He was a kid who was whoever he needed to be in that moment. So I don't think that, you know, I'm not saying that he isn't principled or he doesn't believe certain things, but I believe that he's been able to navigate in spaces that many people can't because he's he's in many ways accommodating. I bring up the, um, you know, how he uh, distanced himself very quickly from Jeremiah Wright, the man who actually married him. Um, but Jeremiah Wright became a liability and Barack Obama had to be someone else and pretend as if that he didn't know that Jeremiah Wright says the things that he says in his pulpit. Now, Max is going to call in and ask you a question, hopefully soon. But uh, do you think that's, to some extent, a part of the black experience in America? Let me explain. Uh, I got this thought years ago. Chris Rock did a routine where he said the most racist people in the world are as an old black man. And he said he might say to you, you know, yes, sir, you know, I'll take care of that right away, sir. But then as soon as you leave, cracker, cracker mother, mother effer. And I, it occurred to me that, that that is somewhat what Rock was describing there was part of the black experience for that old 
black guy because he couldn't be honest. He had to be, you know, a good customer service representative on on one hand, but he probably had a lot of feelings. So that that duality that you're talking about, that Obama is who he is, you know, he's he changes who he is in front of a different audience. That seems to me to be part of the black experience for a lot of Americans. What do you think, Malik? Uh, I, there, there, there is some truth to that. Um, W.E. Du Bois actually talked about the um, double consciousness that black people have. Um, and I think it's for all intents and purposes, many, many of us have that in order to navigate in a society that per, that like particularly discriminated against black people, um, black people as part of the Virginia uh, Supreme Court decision back in 1805, 1806 specifically said that black people um, were, well, actually, Native Africans were still considered property in ways that no other um, ethnicity or race has been. So with that type of fabric, um, with racism and, you know, and slavery being America's original sin, yes, black people do have that sort of double consciousness. Sometimes it works to our advantage. And then, then other times it doesn't work to our advantage. But I do believe that Barack Obama, like many black people, um, navigate in that space. But I think some of that, the, the, the downside of that is that it limits you. I think Barack Obama muted himself more so than what society would have um, you know, allowed. I think that Barack Obama could have been much more forceful in many areas um, where he just decided to just concede, you know, and pull back when Jan Brewer was on the tarmac, tarmac pointing her finger in his face, you know, Barack Obama kind of demurred when the guy told him, you know, in the State of the Union, you lie, you know, Barack Obama kind of demurred. And I think that he could have been much stronger um, had he take a more aggressive approach as opposed to the, the more relaxed one. Now, what do you think of the way this administration and the Democratic Party uses race now? Um, well, I think it's consistent with how they've used, well, weaponized race over the years. That was one of the things that when I was a Democrat, there are many things, you know, when I talk about race, you know, I used to think that there were certain things that were specifically, if you do certain things, then that means that you are a racist. Um, the 2008 election between the 2008 race between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton showed me that, ah, well, maybe that's not the case. So when Bill Clinton goes around and, you know, makes comments saying that um, Barack Obama would have been serving, serving them coffee years ago, or when someone like Joe Biden says that Barack Obama, he, he thought that Barack Obama had a good chance of winning because he was, you know, clean and articulate. I'm sorry, that was Harry Reid. That you know he was an articulate guy who didn't speak in a Negro dialect unless he had to. I, prior to then, that was always racist. Like for a white person to say something like that about someone being clean and articulate and not speaking in a Negro dialect, that was like de facto racist. But then, as I learned, um, well, as I experienced during that time when I was railing against it, um, people's like, well, you know, that's not really racist, and so you know. I look at it differently. Like, like I look at race now. So the things that I used to think 
if a white person said something or if they had a negative interaction with me, then that means that you're doing that because I'm black and you are racist. I don't believe that anymore. And it and it's actually took leaving the Democratic Party in order for me to appreciate that sometimes you just don't like people. You know, sometimes you can just say nasty things about people, but it doesn't mean that you are racist yourself. There are racist people, but not every white person who has who says something negative or has a negative interaction with um, black people are racist. Now, what do you think of the current jam that Kanye's got himself in? So Kanye, there's a guy who kind of bragged about not reading books, but he's dropped by Adidas today. That's the headline. And he's getting canceled. What do you think about the trouble Kanye has gotten in, Malik? Um, and before I say that, I'll answer your question. I, I um, Just to mention about the Democratic Party, I actually think that they've been able to successfully weaponize in a race, weaponize race in a way that has maintained um, the black vote, meaning black people voting almost 90% for one political party, making us the largest partisan, sing, the single largest partisan voting bloc in US history. Um, Kanye West, I think Kanye West talked himself out of a lot of contracts. Um, I listened to the comments. Now, obviously, I'm not Jewish. So my sensitivity is much different in ways that I'm not a woman. So I have a different sensitivity when it comes to things that I may not think is sexist, um, that are sexist or that women consider sexist. Um, Kanye's comments, there, there seems to be a consensus, at least in the Jewish community, that what he said was anti-Semitic. I think that people should be held accountable. Um, do I, you know, businesses have to do what they have to do, but I do know that there's a lot of discussions now going on. Those who aren't just let's, you know, attack Kanye and cheer this because Kanye supported Donald Trump or Kanye. Um, you know, hat on the White Lives Matter t-shirt. Like the real discussions that we're having is that these businesses um, are willing to distance themselves from Kanye um, because of these anti-Semitic comments. But these, some of these same entities support, um, you know, music and even people who like glorify violence and you know, it's just a, in many ways, it's a contradiction. And in a way, that's kind of what Kanye was talking in one of the, his spiels. That's um, what he was talking about. So it does seem to there is a contradiction on what's allowed. And this a whole thing that we talk about with free speech, ultimately, you're held accountable. But it does seem as if Kanye is being held accountable um, for making anti, anti, you know, anti-Semitic marks, remarks that people have been not held accountable when making racist remarks um, against black people, particularly those who are black and conservative. But Kim Kardashian talked about Kanye doesn't medicate, he's bipolar, he doesn't take his medication. It seems as if Kanye is having another you know, episode and it's unfortunate because he seems like he's unraveling. So I hope he gets whatever the help he needs, but this is not well normal behavior. Also, he was subjected to trauma because he was married to Kim Kardashian. So let me point that out, too. <laughs> he suffered. So want to go to calls, 202-521-1320. Malik is calling from Malik. And thanks for calling back, Malik. 
go ahead. What's your question for Malik? Uh, yeah, no, thank you for it. No, thank you. Uh, you know, I, I, and I, on that Kanye thing, I, I think Kanye uh, brought that on himself. You know, he found his prize. He, he had an ideal woman, and he found her, and he, he got what he deserved. <laughs> That's what I think, anyway. But, uh, but Malik, I, I did have a question uh, f- uh, that I've been wanting to ask you um, on fault lines, but I you know, haven't gotten a chance to yet. Uh, there's been a phenomenon uh, in the past few years. Uh, obviously, uh, as was discussed in your, your recent uh, left versus right debate, uh, here in D.C., uh, you know, black people are leaving the left and, in particular, are uh, leaving the Democratic Party. Um, but also, there's been this phenomena of black men, roughly in their 30s, some in their 40s, maybe even uh, in their 20s as well, uh, who are not only uh, leaving the Democratic Party, um, some probably never even voted, uh, but have embraced, uh, to, a, to lack of a better term, have embraced Trumpism uh, 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 and populism, but in particular have embraced uh, conservatism uh, without even investigating uh, forms of, of, of traditional or more conservative black politics, of which I would say black nationalism might be a more traditional politic. Uh, in fact, many of them seem to reject it. Uh, as, as you know, and and rather than uh, gravitate to a uh, a black nationalist, red, black, and green flag, uh, they re- they would rather uphold uh, the red, white, and blue, and and can't be shamed to what to do otherwise. Uh, have you noticed this phenomenon? And I'd like to get your opinion on it. Um, I've noticed a shift, definitely, and I think that shift. Um, you have to consider that black people traditionally have been more conservative. Uh, We have those who are more fiscally conservative and we have many black, as someone from Mississippi who grew up in the South, I know what social conservatism looks like among black Democrats. So I think that we're naturally conservative people. Um, Probably what happened, and it could be a a similar trajectory to mine, Post Obama, things began to change. We began to view things differently. So the things that we see that impact our community, we're realizing that one, Barack Obama, as the black first black president, he wasn't there to solve our problems. But many of those things that I talked about that are resolved at the local level, I think that black men, especially during a time where um, you know we had Trayvon Martin and we had all of these. Um, different killings during, you know, police violence and all of that. Black men largely were excluded from those conversations because you normally saw the white, the mothers. Not that the, and that's not because the black men weren't, in, you know, part of that. And far as you know, black men embracing conservatism, I, like I say, I think many people um, have the same trajectory as I did. You know, I want lower taxes. That's not a principle of the Democratic Party. I'm pro-life. Many black men are pro-life. I'm not necessarily, you know, I have no LGBT. I have no problem with the, um, you know, LGBT community or anything. And I believe in equal rights, but I'm not marching out in the streets for trans rights. I'm not superimposing things like trans rights and many of these other things that the Democratic Party actually does. So I think that black people, black men, um, I don't think that it is uh, rejecting black nationalism because 
people don't understand what that is anyway. So it's talking about the political parties and the ideology. Ideology. I think that people are seeing that you know all of the you know I I had all of my eggs in one basket, and that was the Democratic Party. In every election cycle, I complained about the things that I did not like. Maybe it's time to leave the Democratic Party and give the Republican Party or just leave the Democratic Party altogether a chance because we're not getting what we say that we want in every election. And and, uh, we'll come back to abortion. But also, I think there's something to be said, Malik, that, that black people in America have been successful. You know, I think there's probably more millionaires who are black in this country than anywhere. Do I, do I do you know anything about those statistics, Malik? Um, I don't know anything about the statistics, but I, I I take your point that there are black people have been very successful here in the states, and you know, but you know, there are black business owners, there are black businesses, you know, so it isn't right. our issues aren't our issues aren't just limited to criminal justice reform and things like that. Like there are a lot of Black people who are doing well in this country, just as um, you know, there are a lot of black people who aren't, and that right there exists. Whether we're talking about in a, a major urban environment like a, a New York City or a Washington D.C., you see similar lack of access to capital, and you know, even internet service providers in places like rural um, Maryland or Kentucky, where white people live. So economics is the dividing line, much more than race now. Yeah. So, so Malik, great call. Thanks for calling back. So, Malik, you you talk about abortion. Uh, when you were a Democrat, how much did you know? Because when I was a Democrat, I didn't know anything about Margaret Sanger, for instance. I knew nothing at all, and I was pro-choice. But when I found that history out, I was shocked. Uh, open racist and admired and supported by Democrats. How much of that history did you actually know as a Democrat? I didn't know any of it. And when I was a Democrat, I was pro-choice and I didn't have any restrictions on that. So I kind of um, I evolved into a pro-life position. But I also know that there is some kind of, there's a little nuance to the Margaret Sanger um, um, discussion. She wasn't exactly the racist that people said she was, and she wasn't exactly, um, you know. She, yes, she studied eugenics, and but there's a little more nuance to the Mar- Margaret Sanger discussion. But none of that, yeah. But none of that factored. Like Margaret Sanger didn't factor into me becoming, you know, f- embracing a pro-life position. It was really just. Um, kind of a personal journey, Um, not that I experienced myself, but um, just not being able to reconcile being okay or thinking that a growing baby, um, a life that's growing inside of someone should be subject to the mother's choice, whether or not they live or die. So it was an evolution. Your your experience parallels mine because as I said, I didn't know any of that at all. And in a way, I think that is intentionally kept from Democrats. Do you think that there are things about the Democrats' history that are intentionally kept from Democrats? 
No, I don't think so at all. I think every everything is out there. People highlight parts of history that helps what you know, whatever con- what you know that usually confirms their point of view or their biases. I don't think that there's a lack of information or access to the information. People believe what they you know, choose to believe. It doesn't matter that you know we know there's a history of the Democratic Party when it comes to the Ku Klux Klan and all of that. You know, we have to look at where we are today. But I don't think that you know that. that People, you know, the reason that I reject that you know, things are being kept from the Democratic Party is that, you know, we're in an information, but it's so easy to share things on online and we have access to Google. So I don't think it's being kept. They don't want to know. You know, there's a difference than, you know, being information being suppressed, like the Hunter Biden story, but all of, you know, politically, ideologically, I think, or the history of the Democratic Party, I think that they just don't want to know. Well, the, part of the reason I say that, when I was a Democrat, I was one of those people who said, you know, if Alinsky came up, I thought it was a right-wing conspiracy, and I had not read Alinsky. And so when I, you know, when I became a Republican, is when I read Alinsky. And mm-hmm. as a Democrat, I wanted to, but I never did. Does that make sense? Wow. Yeah, yeah, it did. It did. It did. But yeah. I had, but I did, yeah. you know, I, I was a reader. So I, I typically, some things, you know, I find out for myself. But good point. Good point. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's all I was saying. But Malik, great conversation. And we got to go because it's almost time to go. But great conversation. Tell us, you're on fault lines now, right? What Jamal, how's, how's Jamal treating you? Yep. Jamal is great. I'm on there, I think, for the, the, the remainder of this week. And we'll see what happens next week. But you can find me, Malik Abdul, M-E-L-I-K Abdul underscore on Twitter, Instagram, and on Facebook, Malik Abdul. And Malik, obviously, you're welcome back anytime on the Please, back show. Thanks so much. Malik Abdul, and thanks so much to Jason Goodman for a great job co-hosting On the Road. And thanks so much to Texas, Russell Bentley, for his report from Russia. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this has been another episode of The Backstory.